pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. It's episode 84 here on PGE, and if you missed me, I'm back. Me, Sam Levowitz, alongside Jack Hendon, bringing you all the Mets news and notes of the week, as Jack last week had our very first fill-in guest host. Uh, along with him, I was unable to make the recording. I was dealing with a bit of tonsillitis. My schedule's been crazy since I got out on Cape Cod here doing my broadcasting gig. And so he and Rob Pearsall brought you an excellent, about an hour, hour and a half of content. Um, definitely go give that a listen because Rob is fantastic. A true friend uh, of both of us and of the podcast. And go give that episode a shout out if you haven't yet for this week. Uh, it feels like it's been a while since Jack and I have actually been in the Zoom room and talked to you guys, but we're back. Uh, me from Cape Cod and Jack from his apartment back in New York and the Mets also back in New York after a grueling road trip that took him to the West Coast for 12 games. They're back and then they took two out of three from the Brewers. They've taken two out of three so far from the Marlins with another game to play today, Monday, June 20th, um, recording before that game. So if anything groundbreaking happened in that game and you're listening after that game, we're sorry. We didn't talk about it. Uh, but in any event, Jack, when last we spoke to our wonderful, pleasant listeners, uh, the Mets were about to embark on that terrible, terrible stretch um, starting on the last day of May, and they've made it through. They finished that West Coast road trip 500 and they've come back and have all but taken two series since they've come back home pending the final game of this Marlins series. And what are the takeaways that we can really take away from the, the stretch that the Mets have been on? The takeaway above all else, I think, is that this team is really good. Um, I think the takeaway really is that, like, I mean, we talk about a, a this stretch being a terrible stretch. I think I was particularly in the camp that this would be a terrible stretch. I was, um, you know, I was, but I was mistaken. Um, I was wrong. I thought this team was going to come out with about, you know, 11 wins at most. And they came out with 14. Um, they played a great stretch all the way up to that mill. I'm counting the Milwaukee series. Obviously I know that getting the day off and then coming back home um, is a little bit, of a breather and it's a little bit more of a given that you're going to play better, but that is a good team still that the Mets have had trouble with in the past. And I mean, listen, they still have this weird problem where they lose games by like five or more runs. And it seems like these games are pretty much over like by the fourth or fifth inning, but they also played really, really good games. I would classify the Thursday victory as another amazing finish. Um, I would even go so far as to say that Chris Bassett had an amazing bounce back. Um, his start yesterday also was for the most part, very good. Uh, and that's been, that's been a, a, a pleasant sight, but I think that this group is definitely, uh, for real. I was a little concerned that we were going to be exposed or at least things were going to get a little bit tighter in the division. And I guess like to my credit, they have, but that's not so much because of what the Mets have done. Like the Braves, their winning streak finally came to an end at 14 games. But before that, it seemed like they were going to be playing the Nationals every day for the rest of the year. Um, it was no fault of the Mets that, that these two teams gained ground on them. They played really good baseball 
particularly in their wins. The pitching has been great. Uh, the offense has been clicking for the most part. Um, I, I really like genuinely for the first time, just can't complain. I can't find things to complain about maybe a, a thing or two to be worried about, but uh, this is maybe the happiest I've been rooting for a team at this point in the season um, in a really long time. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. They're what 19 over 500 right now. They they're playing good baseball overall. Obviously the, the most recent Mets game left kind of a, weird taste in our mouths because Chris Bassett was out dueling Sandy Alcantara through six. And then uh, Seth Lugo gave up a, a grand slam to Gerard Encarnacion that probably was avoidable considering Bassett probably didn't need to start that seventh inning, much less face the three batters in it that wound up reaching. Uh, so that one definitely leaves us with more of a, Hey, they, are some areas to address on this team moving forward bullpen specifically one as we've talked about already this season that the bullpen is uh, an area of need for this team but beyond that things are pretty good in Mets land thing we're living we're living well as Mets fans right now the team is playing well we did a little Polsky on Twitter before this stretch of uh of 22 games that we were going to talk about um that included that stretch out west against the Dodgers, Padres, and Angels, uh, and the Brewers once they got back home. And we asked you guys how many wins you thought the Mets would have at the end of this 22-game stretch. 4% of you said under eight wins, um, which was, yeah, a a low number, um, and certainly, I think, fair because this is a good baseball team. Um, 23% of you, said between 9 and 11 wins including Jack also voted for that one and then 14% one, yeah yeah 14% of you voted for 15 or more wins which you were wrong and then 59% of us including myself were in the correct boat who said between 12 and 14 wins the Mets finished that stretch 14 and 8 um including a 6 and 6 road trip out west so Good stuff. Really yeah. genuinely good stuff that the team finished this their hardest stretch of the season so far at 14 and 8 and they still have a I believe a five and a half game lead over the Braves in division. The Braves gained a ground back a game of ground back on the Mets on Sunday, but yeah. The Mets had gained two games back in the standings the two previous days as the Braves lost the first two in that series to the Cubs to break a 14 game win streak. The Braves won 14 games and only gained about, what, four games in the standings on the Mets in that span? Yeah, three or four, give or take. Um, I mean, they've come a long way from being 10 and a half out. Uh, Like, if if they were 10 and a half out right now, we'd be talking about, like, you know, when they were going to clinch the division. Like, it would be, it would basically be over at that point. But, um, no, dude, I, all I can say is I really love it when I set, uh high expectations for my favorite baseball team and they meet my expectations like that's just uh it's 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 a weird feeling but I really I I can't say that uh I don't like it it was just a great stretch a lot of guys just had moments here and there um all the way down to like Adonis Medina this is this is now I mean we're we're dredging back like two weeks for in terms of moments but it's also good just for us because we haven't gotten a chance to unpack all of that together. 
Um, and really the stretch that they have coming up is, is a pretty normal stretch. I mean, the Rangers might be hot by the time we play them. Maybe they aren't, but like, they're also just not a very good baseball team. No, well, they're not good. I don't think they're good, but sometimes with teams that the Mets aren't familiar with necessarily, I have the expectation that someone like if Martin Perez pitches against the Mets, a lefty who's having a good season, they're going to scratch out like two or three hits is my expectation. But then again, I've, I've, I've been wrong every time I've undersold this team, aside from the four games they have with the Astros across this next, these next 17 games or so um, it's three against the Marlins. Uh, like I said, there are the three against the Rangers. Then they have three against the Reds at home, which I'm really excited uh, for the Matt Reynolds Albert Almora revenge game. Um, and then they got four more against the Marlins and only then do they play the Braves again. Yeah. Uh, they have a lot of time to, to potentially build up and get back to 10 and a half. Um, I think it would really, it would probably take a brave losing streak in concert with that. But um, I think that if the team, if the Mets continue to play that they, the way that they have been, uh, we could be in a very good position to just end their season before the end of the first half, which yeah. would be awesome uncharted territory unheard of um but also this team is kind of in uncharted waters right now like they're they're not usually 20 games above 500 on june 20th um i don't know that's it's it's like i said i'm i'm just i'm very optimistic i think you're right about the bullpen uh i think that that's going to be a little bit of a gray area especially these next two weeks probably i mean it really depends when max scherzer comes back but even then i think that you know colin holderman getting hurt uh trevor may still being hurt and now the the possibility that seth lugo is just like you know a a 2019 edwin diaz where like he has two good games in a row and then he costs them the third game and that happens every time like if he's not going to be good that i think that will still be an area of concern because right now Edwin Diaz is kind of holding up the entire brigade. But uh, I also feel like it's been in worse places this season and it hasn't cost the team because their offense has clicked or their starters have given them the innings in response. I think Bassett, like on Monday, he went eight innings, like, or that um, was that Tuesday. That was Tuesday. He gave them eight innings, but like, you know, they're a responsive group. Is, is more so my point. Yeah, I agree so with you completely. Only a worry. I agree with you completely. This team has – it's weird. It's a weird spot because you were a little more pessimistic going into the road trip than I was. Um, <laughs> and I'm just kind of in a place where I'm very, very glad that this team has not given me many reasons to worry about the long-term health of the baseball team, not the health is in terms of – like injuries or whatever, because those happen and they have happened, but like the health of the team in terms of the wins and losses, I really haven't had a reason to be concerned that this team is capable of going on a, uh, an extended losing streak. And that's why I felt more optimistic going to the road trip because it was kind of a, Oh, they will be fine mentality. And they were six and six on the 12 game road trip was perfectly, perfectly fine. Um, and considering how good the Dodgers are, considering how good the Padres have wound up being over the last few weeks and considering yeah, how right. good and considering how many weapons the angels have that in any given game, when trout Otani and I don't know, Jared Walsh do something good with Taylor Ward on the shelf. Um, they can put up a bunch of, a bunch of runs quick as we saw in that series in the, in the game in which Walsh had 
had the cycle and Trout went yard and et cetera, et cetera. Um, in terms of the Braves, the Braves has finished probably the easiest stretch of games um, in the history of baseball, and they took advantage of it. That's That 14-game win streak, they played the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, the A's, the Pirates, and the Nationals. How many times did they play the Nationals is my question here. Only one series in that span. It was it was a okay because it felt like a five game series. It the felt like streak, every day they were playing Patrick Corbin. Yeah, and the win streak Eric actually Benton. the win streak actually started against Arizona. They won the final game of a series against the Diamondbacks on the road. Then they won four straight against the Rockies at Coors, two straight against the A's at home, four straight against the Pirates at home, and then three straight against the Nationals at home. Then they went to Wrigley and lost the first two games. That's a really easy stretch. And the fact that they lost two out of three instead of sweeping a really bad Cubs team and didn't get up to 17 games in a row is frankly a miracle. However, it ends because they go home to play against the Giants for four and the Dodgers for three starting tonight. Um, The Giants have been playing really good baseball. The Dodgers are still the Dodgers, even though they just lost Mookie Betts. So, as the Mets gear up for two against the Astros and then three in Miami, um, there's a chance for the Mets to gain some ground back in the division here because the Braves are finally playing real baseball teams. Um, and then they get the Phillies after that. But the Phillies can be competitive, and they've played good baseball too over this stretch. Thankfully, still about eight and a half out in the division at the moment because um, they're the Phillies. Yeah, the Rob Thompson effect was not going to be that potent. Um, but, you know, they because they have played some Phillies games like the last yes. week or so yes. since the winning streak ended. Like, still remarkably, I'm still remarkably unconcerned about the Phillies, despite them having a similar but not completely comparable hot streak to the Braves. Um, they're the Phillies. I'm not concerned about the Phillies. They're the Phillies. The Mets, it's a weird stretch for the Mets right now because they have this four-game set against the Marlins finishing up today. Then they have two against the Astros, three more against the Marlins in Miami, and then two more against the Astros at home. And then they get the Rangers for three, the Reds for three, and then four more against the Marlins. The Astros, you got to split that. The Astros are a good baseball team. They're going to win the West this year again. Um, got to split those games best you can. And then you really just got to beat the Marlins. Got to beat the Rangers. Got to beat the Reds. It's really that simple. The Rangers and Reds are not good teams. The Marlins are not a very good team. Um, they have some guys on the shelf this year that are making them worse. But this is 17 games that it's a stretch in the schedule that you can take advantage of. And then also, the Mets after the All-Star break have a much easier schedule than before the All-Star break because they get a lot more games against the Nats and the Marlins. Um, they have the A's and the Pirates. They haven't played the Pirates at all yet. Mm. They have their second oh. series against the Reds. They didn't they, – the Pirates thing was a little bit of a disaster last year, to be fair. Um, but that is also last year. I don't, I don't get excited about playing the Pirates. Going to Pittsburgh always sucks. 
the caveat, the caveat, Jack, as we've talked time and time again with this baseball team is that usually that's the case. Usually there's one or two really heartbreaking losses on the West Coast trip. Usually when you play a bad team, they actually they wind up blowing a game like the Pirates. But this team is not the usual Mets team. This is a more resilient baseball team and one that has played a higher quality of baseball this entire season thus far. And a team that's going to get some reinforcements back soon. They, that's right. Tyler McGill is still right. on the shelf. He came back, got hurt again. Unfortunate. We don't like that. It means we have to deal with more David Peterson and, and Trevor Williams starts. It happens. But Jacob DeGrom is throwing bullpens. Max Scherzer is going to throw a rehab start this week. He is finally getting back on the mound after his oblique injury. And they say if that rehab start goes well, he will be ready to rejoin the rotation next week. So we might only be dealing with one more turn through the rotation without Max Scherzer, especially because of the off day before they head to Houston. So finally, it feels like there's going to be someone at the top of this rotation who can put up seven shutout innings consistently. Like they're finally going to have an ace back because Chris Bassett, as good as he's been his last two starts, was not very good during the road trip. His two worst starts of the season have come against the Giants. Um, has thrown up some clunkers recently before that eight shutout innings against the Brewers. So my confidence in him is a little shaken, but I still think he's a good pitcher. He seems to really like pitching at City Field, which is great. Yeah. Um, but you put Max Scherzer in front of him in the rotation, you can move Peterson or Williams to the bullpen, give yourself a little bit of a boost in the pen. Uh, and you can just kind of ride Max as Max Scherzer, which is really, really a welcome re-addition to this team. Getting him, yeah. not only getting him soon, but getting him well before the trade deadline so you can kill those narratives of, uh, the trade deadline is coming and the Mets have reinforcements coming back and DeGrom and Scherzer are going to come back to the deadline and they're going to be like, Trade acquisitions, shut up. Shut well, up. it will be McGill now. It will be Tyler McGill now. Okay. Here's we are going to deal with it. Can I, can I give a hot take for a second? Okay. I know he throws like 97 now. McGill is not like an ace. Like, I feel like we've been talking about him all year as like a front end of the rotation guy. Yeah, but you got to consider this, okay? Uh, he was not really a prospect when he came up which is a lot like Jacob deGrom. Yeah, he was a sink or slide and, changeup guy. And now and and he had a good first season like Jacob deGrom did. And then his velo went up a little on his fastball the way Jacob deGrom did. So I think the point that you're really missing is that Tyler McGill is actually just Jacob deGrom. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's where I went wrong. You're forgetting that. Like, you know, you know how like Jacob deGrom had had a bad stretch and like Terry Collins put his arm around him and was like, it's going to be OK, son. It's going to be OK. And then, oh, like, yeah, got it going like this is the Jacob deGrom arc. This is that, like, it's like a Marvel movie. OK, so what you're saying is that McGill needs to get healthy before the Rangers series, because that deGrom start in which he cried in the dugout was in Texas. Well, no, so, what I'm saying actually is that they need to hire Terry Collins um, and make him manager so that they oh, can facilitate this. Terry's, um, are, Terry's around the club enough. Yeah, I guess he is, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> um, he's around the club uh, enough. Yeah, 
God. Oh, man. I watched Rafael Montero on the ESPN Sunday night game last night, and all I could think about was Terry Collins, like, pitching him into the ground in a 90-loss season. And then oh, the God. We're going to see him this season. Yeah, we are. And he's going he's gonna to shove. It's going to be worse than Seawald. He's going to be really good. He's, um, yeah, he's going <laughs> to – yeah, we're going to see Rafael Montero locked down to save against the Mets this week. Oh, God. That discourse is inescapable. We will be dealing with this, like, God forbid we play a team and Scott Casimir pitches for them because I'm pretty sure he's still trying to get signed somewhere. Like, like we're just going to be hearing this every time. Guy the Mets shouldn't have given up on uh, because the Mets mismanaged him. Anyway, this has gone a long way off from Tyler McGill, but uh, I think that, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel the same way about uh, McGill as a lot of fans do. I think that he did a, a lot of heavy lifting when he basically had to take Jacob deGrom's place in the rotation at the beginning of the year, um, and he has a really high ceiling, but we are also at a point where something is clearly not right mechanically if he's continuing to get hurt. Um, and some adjustment needs to be made in order for him to really contribute going forward. He's being shut down four weeks. We're not really going to get to see him for a little while. I do hope that by the time he comes back, there is less pressure on him like there was. And I'm not the kind of person, I, I don't go inside players' heads, right? I'm not suggesting that McGill hurt himself because of, you know, because there was a lot of attention paid to his return when he came back to Anaheim. Like that's a stupid narrative. I would never buy into that. But I, I do also think that like, it would just be good for the guy on a health level when he does come back next, if he is not needed uh, in the same capacity that he was, where he needs to be like a seven inning guy, throw 97, you know, give it your all. Um, Cause I think for us, I really do remember talking about McGill's role with this team at the beginning of the year and the idea of him simply turning his fastball changeup and the potential for another plus pitch and leveraging that into a really, really good high leverage relief role. Like, I think that if we can sort of ease him into that sort of position when he does come back, hopefully Scherzer's around long-term and that we never have to worry about filling his spot again. And hopefully everyone else continues to do what they're doing. Because at the other end of it, you have Taiwan Walker, who now, I think a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about McGill returning, um, we talked about, maybe not the two of us, but I think a lot of people were throwing around the idea that when it gets to crunch time and someone needs to, you know, get axed from this rotation, it would probably be Walker um, because McGill had the higher ceiling and Walker wasn't striking anyone out. And to his credit, Taiwan Walker has had a really, really good last pair of starts. Um I mean, if he sticks around too, you, you, again, you're putting yourself in a pretty good position to use McGill uh, at a more, I'd say to have a little bit of a shorter leash on him, but also get results out of him. Um, so that's, I don't consider that any sort of deadline acquisition. I think he serves a much, I think his purpose with this team is much more distinct. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think, Maybe the injury things, I it's like I hate to speculate on, on injuries, and that's like something that they really try to harp on young broadcasters to like if a player gets hurt on the field, don't speculate on injuries because especially in these like collegiate leagues, like families watching and you yeah. don't want to worry the family, like that kind of thing. So they harp on that, but I can't help but 
wonder if for a guy who's been 92 to 95 his entire professional career if all of a sudden him ramping up to sitting 97 um has affected his his arm a little bit it's added strain on an arm that has never really thrown 97 miles an hour before with any sort of consistency and like I enjoy this new version of Tyler McGill a lot. I do. I think a guy who throws 97 with this little tight slider that he's shown this year and the good changeup is a real weapon for this team, but he needs to be on the field in order to do that in order to be the weapon for this team. So if it takes him going back a step towards the guy that we saw last year, who's a little more, 93 to 95 change up occasional slider guy. Um, if that's the guy that the Mets need in order to get, you know, big league quality innings um, and make sure that he's healthy for the, the stretch run. I think that's a trade-off I'd be willing to make, especially if over the next four weeks, while he's shut down, we're getting Scherzer and hopefully DeGrom back. Now, once we get to the playoffs and the starting rotation can condense and you can kind of shuffle guys around, then I think you say, hey, Tyler, go out to the bullpen and, you know, an inning every two or three games, gas it up at 98. Why not? You know, a little more max effort over a shorter period of time as a reliever. I think that's a situation in which I'm like, show us your plus plus stuff. But if the Mets need innings out of him down the stretch, if he comes back and he has to slide in back into the rotation because someone else gets hurt or someone's not performing. um, I think the Mets, the, the, the impetus for the Mets, the most important thing would be just to have him available and healthy. And if that means taking a little bit off of the stuff, um, that's a trade-off I'd be willing to make for the same kind of quality innings that like a, like a slight improvement over like a Trevor Williams, who's been good, uh, not great, but like passable in his right. role. Um, if you can get like a 10% boost on the effectiveness of that guy by replacing Williams with McGill instead of a 25% boost, by taking the McGill that we got on opening night, uh, I think I would take that. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a, definitely a worthwhile trade-off. I'm also sort of in the camp of, uh, I really am on board with the idea. And I think that it's probably, again, a little bit of the pessimism in me dominating like my own idea of what makes the most sense. I would also be perfectly fine with, in a situation where pitchers are not performing well, uh, and by pitchers, I mean fringe rotation pitchers, right? So the Williamses, maybe the Walkers, you know, like those guys are not hacking it anymore and McGill comes back. I would even at that point consider if it really is a matter of health, uh, trying to get McGill full strength through that bullpen in the event that that bullpen also needs reinforcement. Because I think that by moving starters into 
length roles and spelling the long, you know, the, the high leverage guys who've been asked to do more and more recently, I would be okay with that. With the trade-off being that, you know, instead of McGill being in that rotation, you trade for someone who really can be in that rotation. Um, how far you go with it, I don't really, I'm, I'm not sure yet. It's also early, like it's June 20th right now. And when, by the time we're talking McGill return and what his health is going to look like, it probably will be like a couple days before the deadline. Um, but there are people out there, right, you know, that you could take a cheaper flyer on. Um, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking like Jared Eikhoff flyers, like you would make a trade, but you wouldn't, you know, maybe it's not Luis Castillo or Frankie Montes, but maybe it's, you know, Chad Cool. Maybe the Rockies are really trying to get something from him because he's sort of, you know, parlaying his second chance with a new team into really good numbers. Um, maybe you take a flyer on Mike Miner and if you think you can fix him. I think that the numbers have been really, really bad with the Reds. Uh, but he also is someone who's adapted to having bad numbers before and turn them around if Jeremy Hefner thinks that that's sort of the guy. I think that really if McGill is full strength and he can do it, there's no reason not to put him into the rotation. But if you are questioning when it's crunch time, whether he needs to be there or whether he's better served ramping up a little bit in, a, in an innings to innings role, I think that it would be really it would not only improve the rotation to make a trade, but it would by proxy improve the bullpen, which as we talked about briefly is sort of, I'm not going to say they're in dire straits uh, because I trust, uh, you know, three of the guys behind Diaz to have good games, but as far as how often I trust them, that's becoming a little bit of, of a gray area. And, you know, I would like it if we weren't losing games in the seventh or eighth inning, uh, you know, in September, um, I think that that stuff can just really sink a team. Um, even if they're, even if by then they have a great track to the playoffs, like this can be what gets you out in the first round. If you can't hold your leads, um, you know, and right now it's essentially it's Edwin Diaz. Um, and then I'd say everyone under Diaz, I would say Lugo, Ottavino and Smith are the three people beneath Diaz who can have a good game, can also have a bad game. Um, and then after them, you just have people that I honestly, when they come into games, I'm not feeling it. Uh, I don't, I'm not really feeling it with Joely Rodriguez. However, I, however you feel about Miguel Castro, like I think that the experience watching him was more tolerable than it's been watching Joely Rodriguez just because of the control. Chase and Shreve, I'm, I, I don't really consider him in competitive situations at all anymore. Um, and then you have three guys right now on this roster, one of whom will probably be cut by the end of today because they have to get down to 13 pitchers. But you have three guys essentially in your bullpen and eventually two, which is still probably too many, who weren't on this roster to begin the year, don't really have a, a, a future here um, going forward, at least for two of these guys. They're easily optionable guys, but also like, they're not necessarily like Dodgers optionable or Rays optionable, you know, like they might get option because they have a bad game. Um, they're definitely susceptible to it. And those two guys are Adonis Medina and Johan Lopez. I think Lopez probably gets DFA'd in this situation. Um, you also have Tommy Hunter who pitched really well yesterday. I think Hunter probably has a little bit of a longer leash because he's an instant DFA once they no longer need him. Um, Lopez has, he'd been on the roster for like three days and they didn't use him. So if he's out of options, I don't think it's, 
I think it's small potatoes for them. Yeah, but my I think point, yeah. There's there's also the report that the Mets are considering bringing up Daniel Palka from AAA, yeah. who's going to travel with the team um, to or he's traveling to meet the team right now for the last game of this Miami series. Though he's not on the forty man roster, so I feel like be an easy, I guess, forty trade of of Yoan Lopez for Daniel Palka. Um, I agree with you. I, the bullpen needs to be addressed um, relatively soon. There's like one internal option that you can go with right now. It's Eric Orze in AAA who had a really rough April, but he's been fine to good ever since. The splitter is an actual weapon for him. Um, so he's the one guy that, that's down in AAA that they haven't really used yet. The one, of the, the one guy, honestly, who um, was probably ahead of Colin Holderman on the uh, bullpen depth chart, the minor league bullpen depth chart, ahead of spring training holderman had a better spring training had a better start to his triple a season holderman got here of course holderman on the shelf right now with his injury um in terms of the current major league bullpen i am totally in agreement with you we're we're watching a very 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 good season by edwin diaz a borderline uh signature season um he has looked fantastic this year yeah yeah everyone else talk about that for just one second too if yeah well because i'll let you finish but i mean haven't given him a chance yet this is we're watching an all-star closer we're watching one of the top five relief pitchers in baseball this year uh he has been outstanding he is unhittable he's striking out nearly half the batters he faces uh he's Reached 102 on his fastball this year. Did so against the Angels um, in that Sunday night baseball game. And the slider has been up to 94. Like, he is disgusting. He's so, so good. Um, And it's so funny because I think, and it's only been over the last two months, where the narrative around the trade has started to shift. I don't know if you've noticed this too, but – as Jared Kelnick continues to struggle, as he was, you know, optioned to AAA before the Mets Mariner series back in May, mm-hmm. and I think he got hurt recently in AAA, and his numbers in AAA weren't eye popping before, you know, he, I think he pulled his hamstring or something. Sure. Uh, and with Robinson Cano no longer a factor on this Mets team, Sponge Robinson Cano. Sorry, what? <laughs> That's good people are really starting to focus on the fact that that was a trade for Edwin Diaz by any means necessary. And Edwin Diaz has been ever since his first season as a Met in 2019, he's been like fine to good, had a good year last year. He has, he's, he's back to elite Edwin Diaz. He's back to Mariners Edwin Diaz. Yeah. Pretty clearly. Yeah. And people are, people are finally starting to say that this trade is, giving dividends to the Mets, even though Diaz has, you know, not been a bad pitcher. Um, In fact, has been a a pretty much a very good closer for well over a year now. But now he is like back to that fully elite level of reliever um, that made him so covetous for Brody Van Wagenen in the first place. Um, So I think he deserves all the credit in the world. Um, And I'm excited to see him throw an inning at Dodger Stadium next month because I think he'll be there. Uh, hopefully closing down a National League win or whatever. The game doesn't actually matter. It would just be cool to see him lock down a save. Um, 
But besides him in the bullpen, there's I don't think there's anyone that I I have full complete trust in. I, I just don't. No, no. And I think part of it is that we are spoiled because of Diaz. I think it's not even a matter of him getting back to any one place that he's been as a Mariner. I think he's probably this is the best he's ever been in his career. I would honestly argue that this is the point. I would say that because I've really done, I think, a lot of thinking just about the Mets relationship with this trade. And obviously, we talk about this in terms of giving up on Kalanick. We talk about this in terms of taking on Cano. But I think really the biggest project that any team has had to work through within this trade is the fact that Edwin Diaz was a very, very good young closer who came to the Mets with a lot of expectation around him. And he struggled probably to the point where it cost them the season. It was maybe the most embarrassing year you could have had as a, as a relief pitcher who's working the ninth inning. Um, and just the amount of growth that he's done since then, the amount of confidence that he now has. I mean, I don't know if you saw on Thursday when Buck Showalter came out um, to the mound with two outs and yep. a tying run at third base against yep. Christian Yelich, who even if it's not 2019 Christian Yelich, it's still probably in all likelihood the best hitter on that Brewers team. And he comes up to him and asks if he wants to walk him. And before Buck can even get to the mound, before the, the rest of the team, the infield can even get to the mound, they've all turned around. Diaz tells him, I got it. I'm not walking him. I'm striking him out. And he strikes him out on three pitches. Like that would never, ever happen. Not only in 2019. I don't think that would have happened in 2020. I don't think that would have happened last year. I think that something in there has switched and he's actually been able to turn something on there's some, I don't mean to like, he's got that dog in him, but really if we, ha if we have a guy on this team who does fit that, that narrative, who does fit, who passes that test, it is Edwin Diaz. Do you want to see his numbers? Um, Cause I was curious. I looked them up basically to this point in the year. I think we can both agree that there was the Dalton Varsho home run, which I think of as one bad pitch. It, it was a Only fly ball home run that it was also a fly ball home run that snuck over the fence. It's not like yeah. he gave up a nuke. Yeah. yeah. Edwin Diaz has appeared in 27 games. He's had one bad one. And since that one bad one in San Francisco, these are his numbers. Seven games or no, eight games. He's finished seven of them. It's eight and two thirds innings, right? Because we have that five out save where he had the extra innings of work or the extra outs that he had to get in Los Angeles, which also like fantastic job there. I didn't get to even cover that with Rob, but that was pretty electric to do that on Sunday night baseball, but eight innings, he's given up five hits, two walks, only one earned run that came on Saturday, 19 strikeouts. Opponents are batting 167. They're on base is 219. Their slugging is 200. His ERA is 1.04. His FIP is negative 0.56. <laughs> like he has, been, he has literally seen what happened. He, he, he took what happened against the Giants and has become like, I, I, I can't, I can't find the word negative. Well, FIP. I, I don't even think FIP. I've seen a negative FIP in my life. Also, you said it's eight and two thirds. How many ounces is that? That's 26 outs. That's 26 outs. Yes. He's gotten 19 strikeouts in that span. Yeah, 32 batters faced. He struck out 19 of the 26 guys he's gotten out. That's, I mean, more, that's more than half the batters in that span. Yeah, we were at the game Saturday, and, like, it is it is a vibe shift when they start playing Narcos now. Like, people actually really understand, like, this is a thing that we haven't had in a long time. Um, 
I'd say, you know, there was Jerry's Familia a couple of years ago, but even that, I think as good as Familia was, the strikeout numbers were never like this. Like they were never, ever like top of the league strikeout numbers. He's doing things that no one else is doing. So Diaz, that's my spiel on Diaz. I'm glad we got our Diaz thing out because it's been long enough. And I don't think we really credit him enough, especially now that like there is such a stark contrast with the rest of the bullpen because yeah. Seth Lugo is on and off. Yeah, they, It's I, gotten to the point with Lugo where like they need to warm up a second guy next to him in case he's having a 93 day. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's, it, 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 he's got to find the consistency in him. He might stink. I, I'm glad we're talking about how good Edwin is because thinking about how bad Seth Lugo has been makes my tummy hurt. Like I don't trust him. I don't trust him. I don't trust him to come in in a big spot and get outs. And I think that yesterday was my last straw with him um, in terms of being able to trust him because honestly, I didn't have any, I mean, I, I figured that a run would score in that inning when he came in bases loaded, nobody out, but I didn't really have a whole lot of, like, I didn't, I didn't question the fact that he'd be able to get the rookie out. Like I thought yeah. he would be able to make quick work of Gerard and Cardinacion because he'd been swinging. He had been extending the zone all game. Um, he'd been swinging wildly at pitches up all game. Uh, and I thought that Seth would be able to get ahead of him with fastballs up and put him away with a curveball. And I was like, okay, that feels like a strikeout to me. And then yeah. maybe we can roll the dice and get a double play ball after that or a sack fly that ties the game, whatever. But the guy gave up a grand slam. He left a fat 93-mile-an-hour fastball up. And Encarnacion put a really nice swing on it. To his credit, this kid had a really great start to his minor league season and deserved the call-up and is probably going to be a decent major leaguer by the looks of it because yeah. he's got some tools. Um, he's their first good one in a while. He really did look good. But, yeah. again, Seth Lugo can get him out. That's yeah, not Seth a, Lugo should not be – Lugo should be able to get that guy out, especially in that spot. Big league debut. Bases loaded, down a run in the seventh inning. Um, guys probably in his big league debut will be probably a little overeager. Like, I feel like you can throw a better 3-2 pitch than a fastball that you're trying to dot the outside corner with. I feel like the curveball artist can probably get a, a, a swinging strike on a curveball. Like, I, I don't know. It's weird pitch selection, but also Seth got behind him. Yeah. Um, and had to work back an account, so he was screwed from the beginning of that that at bat. And I, I think that that's just where I'm at with Seth is he has to be the setup guy because there's really no one else at the moment. Like I don't entirely trust Drew Smith either because he gives up too many homers. Yeah, and I don't entirely trust Adam Ottavino because he walks too many guys. Right. Um, and then beyond that, I agree with you completely. I. Don't trust Joelly at all because it seems like every time Joelly comes in to a spot in the order where it's left, right, left, he has to face all three guys. He gets one of them out. He walks two of them. Yeah. It feels like that's every single outing. He comes in, he faces his three batters, and he only gets one of them out. That's yeah. what a Joelly Rodriguez appearance feels like to me. Well, my favorite uh, Joelly experience is when he comes in to get the one out and then Buck brings him out for the next inning because there's another lefty or something and he throws like the first three pitches 
fastballs all like well out of the strike zone. You know what I mean? Like it's also just a problem with misreading like what this guy's really capable of. And I yeah. like Buck. I've really, really grown to like Buck Showalter, but like he doesn't get it with this guy. He doesn't yeah. get it with this guy. He doesn't really get it with Drew Smith either. Like he loves to up down these guys. I know that you're not, you don't want to overwork everybody in that pen and use more bullets than you need to, but you do have to understand if you're trying to win a game, Joely Rodriguez can't come back into a game after he's gotten it out. He's simply incapable of providing the same results that he did the prior inning that he pitched. And to go back to Lugo for a second, because I think the Encarnacion at bat was bad. You shouldn't get beat like that. You shouldn't be making pitches as non-competitive as that in as competitive a spot. However, let's crawl into this as 2022 Mets fans for a second. Say he hits the grand slam. It's four to one. Fine. They came back from four to one on Thursday. They can totally pull it off against a Marlins pen. Why are you with two outs then walking Jazz Chisholm and giving up an RBI to John Birdie? Why can't you just, when the deck is clear, get right back to work? That's my big thing because at that point I knew immediately like, all right, this is what they're going to do. They're going to put up a rally and that one run is going to be what looms large. And ultimately like it didn't really, but it could have it. I think it really, it's happened before too. Like this happened against the Diamondbacks early in the year. I mean, he had the Dodgers game that was terrible. Um, but then he'll have games where he throws 97 and the curveball looks good. And it's like, well, why can't you do that more often? I don't know. I, I, there's no recourse for this team. They can't really IL him. They can't cut him. Um, and they really can't put anyone else in the eighth inning. They got to wait for Trevor May to come back, essentially. Um, but I don't know what you really do. I'm sure one of these guys goes, I'm sure one of them goes when we have to go down to 13 pitchers. I'm sure it'll be Lopez. Maybe they option Medina if they really want to keep Lopez. I hope they keep Tommy Hunter, but like, I don't yeah, know. It'd be, it'd be I, cool. I definitely... Yeah, it would be cool to see Tommy stick around, but like, I, I'm pro bring up Orzi and see what he's got camp. Um, I'm also pro, I don't know, keep an eye on the waiver wire and see if there's any relievers from organizations who don't handle pitchers well and see if you can fix anybody. I I also don't think the Mets are capable of like, sorry if these are sirens in the background. I'm like out on our – spitting fire. That's what's happening. No, um, you're spitting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also don't think the Mets are fully capable analytically of like doing a Yancey Almonte yet. So, or a Clay Holmes. Yeah. Mm. I will, you know, remains to be seen if that's even smart recourse for the Mets, but like, yeah, that's where I'm at is like fix the bullpen by any means necessary. Um, and it, I don't even know what those means are at the moment, because this is really the one hole for this team is, is the bullpen in my opinion. Defense has been good. The offense scores enough runs. The starting pitching has kept them in games and is going to only get better from here with Scherzer and DeGrom coming back. And that's honestly where I'm at is if this yeah. team wants to be a championship contender, um, they got to throw better relief innings. Uh, and I think at that point, or, uh, you know, now with that out of the way that we've done the whole bullpen conversation, we can move on to the mailbag. That's right. We got Which, a mailbag. Finally went back on that mailbag, man. It's been that, too long. Been we got to do more mailbag. of them. I got to get us going on that mailbag grind. We asked you guys um, your favorite experiences meeting a New York Met past, present, future doesn't matter. We said the more wholesome the story, the better. 
bonus points if you drop picks. And we featured a picture of uh, Jack meeting Ronnie and myself meeting Brandon Nimmo at QBC 2018. Sure, sure, Sam. It was QBC. Yeah, okay. It was QBC. Brandon Nimmo is wearing a QBC jersey in this photo. Brandon Nimmo at QBC. Okay. I Okay. I see. I see right. how it is. I don't yeah. know what this bit is, but I think we should just move on to the responses. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll do that. Um, yeah. You go first. Um, Noah, Fra- uh, Noah Schwartz, old friend of mine, said that when Todd Frazier played a few games for the Sussex County Miners of Independent Ball last year prior to the Olympics, uh, he was beyond friendly to me and met him during BP. Then he had a moonshot in the ninth inning that left the stadium todd is, seems like a good guy um famous for coining the phrase fantastic work rich um good guy we love we love todd frazier our new jersey king that's right that's right he's yeah yeah i've never gotten to meet todd but that sounds like a todd thing and he would hit a home run he would do that he, he feeds off of that 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 that, that interaction uh, I've got a good one. I'm just going to get the weird one out of the way first, but I like these. Um, this is Evan Kushner at EVSU. He writes, Jerry Grody spoke at our little league dinner when I was eight. He told a story about his young daughter falling into the toilet bowl. Sure. Like, you know what? I believe you. Um, these, it's, it's funny listening to people like talk about stories that are that far back. Because I think that the experience meeting baseball players back in like the 60s and 70s was probably a lot different when you weren't interacting with them through any other means beyond like bumping into them or, or organizing like some sort of talk. Um, like I think about when Nick Davis came on and talked about how he had Bruce Beauclair at his uh, come to his birthday party and, and, the, and the guy was like his favorite player and he kept calling him Mickey instead of Nicky <laughs> like you just get stuff like that. And like, he ate all the pizza and then left, you know, uh, baseball players are weird people. Yeah, uh, they are. I've been spending a lot of time with baseball players. They are some interesting guys. They are, ever so, the, they mm-hmm. are certainly humans, um, but humans not like you've ever met before. In most cases. Reminds me of that George Brett video where he's at spring training and he's talking, he's like a coach or an instructor and he's talking to the younger players like who are just like stretching out, just like trying to go about their day. And this dude's got like a fungo bat, just like, you know, just stapled between his arms. And he's walking around with like a wad of tobacco. And he's telling everyone about how when he was a rookie, he like pooped himself uh, on the infield during a game. Like they just be sharing whatever. It's just it was a different time. This is just what they do. They really just be saying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jack Ramsey, former Mariah said. My microphone disconnected again, I think. All right. Jack Ramsey, former colleague of ours over in Metzmerize, said, once told Bob Guerin it was my birthday two days in a row, and he got me a ball with autographs both times. Great dude. See, Jack, that just sounds like you're taking advantage of a poor man. Well, you know, I did that today. I did that on Saturday um, because I had – you know, I, I told you once in the game, I went with my girlfriend. We went nice. to batting practice because I tried to get her a ball. We gaslit uh, Jimmy Yakovonis. We basically lied to him. I was like, it's my girlfriend's first game. Can she get a ball? And then he <laughs> threw her one. It was her It was her second. It was her first batting practice. Like, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like that egregious of a lie, but like, it is, what are they going to do? Research it? 
they got to play. Like they're not going to, they're not going to find out. Jimmy's not going to hear this. If you do hear it, Jimmy Yacobonis, come on the pod. Yeah. You had a good, he had a good game on Saturday too. He, he ended up doing well against us. So yeah, I'd love, I'd love for him to come on and we can hash this out a little bit. I just wanted to get her a ball. You know, that's, that's what this was about. It was just business. Um, at 1986, uh, 1986 uh, writes, David Cohn came to my trophy dinner when I was in Little League. I still have my trophy he signed. This is a great one. I never got to have an experience like that uh, where, like, another baseball player comes to your baseball thing. Like, especially David Cohn, like, that's kind of a, I don't know, that's kind of like a, a big deal. I'm not sure when this was, but if it's Little League, it was probably when he was still, like, you know, in the limelight, still a pretty good player. And, um, like, you know, David Cohn is nothing to sneeze at. I never got to meet a David Cohn really. Um, so here's a, a good one. Here's, like a good, here's a good one in the same kind of, not the same kind of vein necessarily, but the same kind of, same era of player. Spring yeah. training of 1987, when this is from uh, Dan the Man, orange emoji, orange emoji, at uh, Guidus Daniel. Um, spring training in 1987 went to eat one night at Jupiter Crab House. Ron Darling and Roger McDowell are having dinner with their wives. They were very friendly. McDowell spills a glass of beer all over his wife. <laughs> that one made me chuckle. Yeah. Yeah, they were just a bunch of fools. Players. Know? They're just like us. Yeah. Also, Roger McDowell was like a noted jokester, prankster kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um wouldn't put it past him to do that kind of thing for the attention it's just a prank bro yeah he probably he, that was he was just he just a prank bro his wife there that's what that's what happened it was all a bit yeah that's a good one though um oh yeah our friend dillip street r uh at dillip street r 16 the funniest run-in i really like this one because it's very like like you it doesn't seem like a real thing like it seems like something that would happen in a dream the funniest run-in was meeting aj ramos at house hospital for special surgery after we both had shoulder surgery he was a really cool dude harvey was super nice too Still up imagine you're getting, yeah. you're getting a surgery and like you know like another major league player who pitches for your favorite team is just right there yeah dillop's got a few stories too because he mentioned harvey in that but yeah. he you know, he's met Matt Harvey because his profile picture is a selfie of him and Matt Harvey. Yeah, and it's literally also, like Matt Harvey's talking to you when he messages you. Yeah, and also, uh, <laughs> I think when he was recovering, maybe from that same shoulder surgery or from a different soldier, soldier, shoulder surgery, wow. Shoulder uh, boy. His, shoulder boy, tell him. His um, nurse or one of the nurses that, like, uh, helped him was Brandon Nimmo's wife, I think. Oh wow, that's sweet. So if Brandon, if uh, Dillop's listening to this, he can confirm for us. But I believe yeah. he told us that story once. Well, Dillop's, Dillop's also got connections, man. He's also a former mesmerized colleague of ours. That's right. Good dude. Definitely follow him. He's a funny guy. Um. Uh. Oh yeah, at cat at bat twelve. Uh, wrote I met Daniel Murphy twice when I was a kid at spring training my mom absolutely loved him and told him how he has such a nice smile he was like well it might be because I have seven siblings and my mom made us take pics all the time long story short my mom loves Daniel Murphy Um, that's actually my story meeting a player I met Daniel Murphy at a bear burger 
uh, if you're in the New York, do they have them in New Jersey? I feel there's like a, there's actually a bear burger, like in the town over from me in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's, it's, it's good little, I wish that they served the French fries. Like I wish the French, you didn't have to order the French fries separately. That would be, yeah. Good. but yeah, the, that's my, that's my bear burger take. Milkshakes also cost like $11. It's a little bit of a scam. Um, yeah. But yeah, he was sitting outside. We had just exited the restaurant and we're like waiting for a cab. I swear to God, like he's got like the curly hair. He's got the beard. This is probably 2013. This was pre, this was pre like monster Daniel Murphy, but it was still like, you know, he was still probably one of the better hitters on the club. Um, And I was like, there's no way that's Daniel Murphy. And as the cab comes, I just, you know, I was, I was probably like 13 or something. So I didn't really know how to I also didn't want to bother him. He was having dinner with his wife. So like we were just getting in the cab and I just yelled at, I was like, Hey, Daniel. And he just looks up from his table and I was like, Holy shit. It is Daniel Murphy. Like, and I was just like, good job this year. And then I got in the cab and that was that. Um, so that was, yeah, he, he was having a good season. Uh, the better, the better ones had, you know, were still on the way, but that's my story too. Uh, really friendly dude meeting him. He'll be at old timers day. I think, um, Still think it's weird that David Wright's not going to be going to that. Um, also, think oh. it's weird that Jose Reyes is going to that. But yeah. we'll move on. Well, hope Daniel's enjoying his Pride Month. Uh, Dean Pavlou. Yep. Dean Pavlou. Right off a couple of uh, quick ones here. Dan, Dean Pavlou at Dean Pavlou. Um, what's up, Dino? He says, when I met David Wright and Terry Collins in Met Spring Training, that was a cool moment. Ghost at Emilio Montanez Force is meeting Daryl Strawberry was one of the coolest things he's ever experienced. He's an amazing person, so down to earth and nice. Uh, popped in a suite at City Field last year. Um, what else we got? I got um, a quote tweet from Gabs FM at Ant Gabs. Uh, outside of meeting Ron and Keith at signings around where I live, the most notable was meeting Seaver in an elevator at Shea. To be honest, I was so young, I didn't know who he was, but my dad did and thanked him for everything he did for the Mets. I mean, that's just the prize right there, meeting Tom Seaver, you know. Yeah, that's a shame I never got to. It's a shame we couldn't. Um, good dude, you know, and obviously just so important to that that franchise. I think we came up, we came up on the anniversary of the Midnight Massacre last week, which we're not gonna talk a whole lot about because I think we were you know, we weren't really there for it, but, uh, still probably the worst day in that history by most accounts, like couldn't imagine living through that. Uh, really wish I could have met Tom Seaver though. That was, yeah. a, that was a close favorite of mine. Yeah. That would have been cool. I'll do one more. And then I think we can remember some guys and I'll use that as my segue into my stories. Yes. Uh, one more from crazy Mets fan at Suzanne Kinsella one, at spring training, Wilmer Flores was signing um, for me and other fans. I said, love you, Wilmer. And he said, love you too, with the heart around the face emoji. Um, then that night we ran into him at Duffy's Sports Bar, and he was so nice and took a picture with us, and they posted the photo. It's very cute. Um, three women with Wilmer Flores at a bar. Very nice. Any more you want to share before we move on? Um, I don't think so. I don't have any. Uh, I, I used my one guy, my one guy story. I did meet Ron Darling, which was cool. It was definitely kind of a fanboy moment. Uh, he was with his family. So I, you know, that's the thing. Like you never want to bother these guys when they have like the one minute of peace in their lives where yeah. they get to spend it with their loved ones. Um, but some of them, I think also 
they're, they've been in it long enough that like, like you wouldn't do this to like Colin Holderman, you know, cause he's running around everywhere, getting options and stuff. You can tell people you saw him and, you know, that's that, but like, I, you know, Ron Darling is someone who's been in the game so long that he knows like, yeah, this is part of Ron's. Things. It's part of his, and it's part of his character. It's part of his, his experience. He enjoys doing it. So he just, you know, he just introduced me to his, his, his son and his wife. And that was really, really sweet. And, um, it's always special when they're when they're that friendly with you and they're that open. Um, that was uh, so that was that was I think that was probably my favorite, probably better than the Murphy one. But those are my two big ones. Um, I mostly just bother people uh, and lie to them about, uh, you know, how many times my girlfriend's been to the game. That's most of my interaction with with baseball players. Sure. Um, I actually saw one more that I think is war- Warren's mentioning. Josh, yeah. Josh Consalvo quote tweeted mm-hmm. us and said with a picture said, this was the day before the Harvey Wheeler doubleheader in Atlanta with the oh. excitement surrounding the guys was so special. It's a picture of, I believe Josh with um, a friend of his and Matt Harvey circa 2012 yeah. or so. Um, really, really cool. Um, that was probably coming up on that anniversary too, the Harvey Wheeler game, which probably. like, Yeah. That was cool. Harvey almost threw a no hitter, and then Wheeler like had a great debut. Also, Eric Young debuted that game though. Really? Which, yeah, he also made his debut that day, uh, and Terry batted him lead off because you know fast guy bat first. Fast guy. Uh, first. Thank you, Terry. Um, but no, that was a good game and an otherwise kind of forgettable season. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, my guys, I've got a few actually. Okay. Um, one time when I was like a preteen, I would say doc Gooden came and did a signing at a local gym. Mm-hmm. And I hammed it up with doc Gooden for, for a few minutes and shadow with doc probably have a picture somewhere. Don't know where don't have it, but I did meet doc Gooden. he was very, very nice, very, very kind gentleman. Um, not long ago, only about a month, month and a half at this point, I was covering a game uh, at, NBT Bank Stadium, uh, which is where the Syracuse Mets play. It was opening day. Yes, this was opening day. So this was our early April, yep. uh, the home opener at NBT this year. Um, Mookie Wilson came and threw out the first pitch. And because I was credentialed press, I chatted with Mookie for a few minutes and learned that he is in the catering business now, that wow. he and his brother own a soul food catering business uh, in Florida, I believe. And he was telling me about certain things that I got to try if I ever get the chance to, that the soul food you get up in the Northeast is a little more basic. You can get so much more stuff down South. And I was, my mouth is watering. Mookie sounds like a really talented chef. Um, really, really engaging, entertaining conversation. I asked him um, if there's any players on the Syracuse roster he's looking forward to seeing while he was here. And he said, well, to be honest, I don't really know any of the guys. So um he was just there to throw out the first pitch and be a, be a Met um, and enjoy a couple of days in Syracuse. Um, had some nice weather for him. He was very appreciative that it wasn't snowing. He's not a big fan of the snow. And then my um, other big one is QBC 2016 or 2018. Rather, I was just about to graduate high, or, yeah, high school um, and head to Syracuse. And um, me and Matt Mancuso, uh, who is a friend of the pod and a friend of ours, former Mets Mariah's colleague as well, uh, who I went to high school with, 
he and I went to QBC in the city in Brooklyn. Um, and the guests that day were Todd Hundley, uh, who I didn't get to meet, and Brandon Nimmo, who you see in that photo uh, on the tweet, on the mailbag tweet, who was very, very nice. Yeah. As I'm sure you're shocked to find out, Brandon Nimmo, really, really nice in person. Yeah. <laughs> You'd never and, think with that smile. Yeah. And the guy that I'm choosing to remember today, Chris Flexen, was also there, a guest at QBC. And what I remember the most about Chris is he was also very nice. He and I actually had a conversation. We chatted about pitching a little bit. And Chris is so bald. Like, he is so eggheady. It's ridiculous. Or he was at this point. Um, like, very, he, he looked like an adult Caillou in a baseball jersey. I was going to say, it does give Caillou, looking at, looking at the photo you sent me, it is yeah. very just a kid who's four. Each day he learns some more. <laughs> and the weirdest thing um, about my experience with Chris Flexen that day is the fact that I believe, and anyone else who was at QBC 2018 might be able to confirm this, that Chris was hanging out with, he was hanging around with, I think the actor who played young Bruce Wayne in the TV show Gotham, David Mazus. I don't, I, I wouldn't know. David Mazus from the Gotham TV series. I believe he was there too. And I think it was him and his older brother. And they were like hanging out with Chris Flexen. I, maybe this is just a fever dream I had, um, but there was some connection to the TV show Gotham at uh, QBC 2018, hanging around with Chris Flexen. I have no way of confirming this. Genuinely no way of confirming this. I didn't go back and David Mazus's social media posts to confirm this before we started recording. This is just something that's in my memory and it's going to stay that way. So if anyone, if anyone can confirm or knows some connection between David Mazus or the Mazus family and Chris Flexen or the Mets in general, feel free to tweet us at the PGE pod or tweet me um, at Sam Lebo 14 or Lebo Maiego on Twitter because it's like burned into my brain. Cause I watched that show a little bit and I'm like, what is that kid from the show doing here with Chris Flexen? Uh, anyways, we need some closure. We yeah. do need, we need, yeah. If you can help, definitely help. Um, All right. Also. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's up? Well, Queen's baseball convention, brief aside, goaded event. Cause I went to, oh, it was a great day. Night. Really fun was, day. I met Matt Mancuso at those games too, or at those events. And they were, they were really, really fun. I think capacity was probably a bit of an issue because it really like the venues we went to catch a story and it was like kind of small. So like the lines were really long. Uh, people were real close to each other. It would not have passed, you know, wouldn't have flown uh, during COVID. Uh, and I don't know if they've had an event since COVID, um, but it was, it was really fun. I, I met Edgardo Alfonso that day. I met Daryl Strawberry that day, but those were very like just autograph settings. You know what I mean? You don't really, yeah, you don't I really think I literally, I think I literally approached Chris Flexen and shook his hand and, and just yeah. started having a conversation with him while he had like a minute off. 
Um, yeah, there were no actual Mets at ours. Uh, it was just former guys. Although Fonzie had been in the system at that point, like managing the minor leagues. So he had like a pretty good, he had a lot of really interesting things to say. But the guy I'm remembering, it's, it's completely unrelated to anyone I've met. Uh, but we were talking about the Reds. We were talking about revenge games, right? The Matt, Ran- the Matt Reynolds revenge game, the Albert Almora revenge game. Um, Put blood on your calendars. Yeah. Well, what I think you really need to know is that the guy who leads this team by F war amongst hitters and is second on this team overall in F war is none other than Brandon Drury, who, I mean, in this, in, on the, su- on the subject of hot streaks, right. We talked about the Braves hot streak a while. Um, Drury had a pretty like just ridiculous stretch with the Mets for a very brief time in 2021 last year. I need to get the specifics because I don't want to get this number wrong. Didn't but he it was like, like 10 for 14 at one point or something? It was a 10 for 14. Like it was on in the aggregate, it was very good. But there was also within those 14 at-bats, it might have been, let me pull it up. Let me get this here. Did I not get the right? I'm looking at his game logs right now. I mean, he literally had a, a stretch of, I think, like at least nine consecutive at-bats where he got a hit. Or reached and base. I think I think included in those at bats was a walk off hit against the yes. Reds. I have it here. He every so he played every day uh, from July twenty fourth through July thirty first before his streak ended. Um, but he literally went eleven for fifteen with four doubles, two homers five runs batted in. So for those at home tabulating this, it was a two, it was a 2133 OPS. Pretty good. Like very, very good. Also kind of the end of the, like it, he didn't really, I think hit much after that. And he got injured in August uh, and his season ended. So he didn't really get to play in September. He finished that year with a, with a 783 OPS um, at the height of his streak, his OPS had reached 922. Uh, but he's, you know, he's just vibing with the with the Reds right now. He's yeah, he kind of having a, his best ever season. He was a decent little bench piece for a little bit there, and that hot streak coincided with a series against the Reds. Yeah, and I guess I guess the Reds were so impressed that they were like, "We got to get this guy. We got to get yeah. this guy." He's already at fourteen homers this year in fifty-seven games. The most he's ever hit in a year was sixteen in one hundred thirty-four. Uh, so I think that if the Reds do what they've been doing all year, he'll probably get traded somewhere and, and be a, a, you know, he'll, he'll be a bat. Uh, Hopefully he doesn't come too close to us in the division, at least. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily mind more Brandon Drury, although I don't know where he fits right now. They're just going to, they're just going to call up Vientos at that point. He feels a little bravesy. Yeah. He does have the Adam Duvall vibe. With with Albies out, he can play some second. He feels a little bravesy. Yeah, could be like the Charlie Culberson, Adam Duvall love child. Yeah, would not be fun. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully they'll kick the Braves' ass uh, in 17 games. I mean, we won't get to talk about that for a little while. Obviously, we still got a couple more weeks, but um, Mets, very good. That's good. Could end all of it. Could not end. They they really could do it. They they could end the Braves' season like before the end of the first half. That would be Mets. Mets be good. Sam Good, Jack Good, Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, Good. And Pleasant. And Pleasant. Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, Pleasant. Episode 84, it's in the books. Here, Sam Lebowitz, Jack Hendon, and Mets fans. 